Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for the Good Christian Girls podcast. I'm super excited for our conversation today. This is a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and I'm lucky to have one of my good friends joining me today, Hillary Sparrow. Hillary is the founder of Denver Psychotherapy Group, which is a psychotherapy practice in Denver, Colorado. She specializes in teaching clients to gain control over their nervous system and overcome past traumas or anxieties in their lives. She also offers ketamine-assisted psychotherapy to eligible clients to deepen their understanding of themselves, improve their relationships, sexual expression, creativity, and vocational performance. Welcome, Hillary. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is awesome. So uh, I brought Hillary here today to talk about drugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I'm using that word just to kind of talk about like any type of substance that we basically grew up thinking as good Christian girls was bad and completely horrible. And um, Hillary uh, actually touches on this in different ways in her work, which is why I thought she'd be a great person to have this conversation with today and just kind of look at some of the beliefs that we were raised with and how those have changed over time. And then also from her professional perspective, um, how, you know, quote unquote drugs in this case, it's specifically ketamine therapy, uh, have helped some of her clients. So, uh, yeah, thanks again, Hillary, for being here. Of course, it's great to be here. Yeah. So, um, I guess, first of all, can you just kind of briefly uh, give everyone some understanding about your background and experience, maybe what ketamine therapy is, and then, you know, why you have expertise in this topic? Yes. So ketamine therapy is, and well, ketamine is a psychiatric medication and it was approved by the FDA in 2019 to use for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. And since then, it's also been used to help treat various types of psychiatric conditions, including anxiety, trauma, and um, to kind of gain more emotional control. And I've been working with ketamine in my practice for probably about four or five years. And the reason I decided to include it is because I got really curious about treatment efficacies in psychotherapy and why certain people do better with certain treatments and why certain people might regress or do worse. And I found that in the type of patient population I work with, uh, mostly anxiety, stress, and trauma, adding ketamine as sort of an adjunct therapy can deepen their experience and um, can also catalyze their treatment progress and bring healing to the client uh, in more efficient and sometimes quicker ways than just psychotherapy alone. And so I practice a specific type of ketamine therapy called ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And what that means is I use a low dose, it's called a trochee 
T-R-O-C-H-E, and it's a clinical term for a lozenge. So it's a very low dose of ketamine in a lozenge that clients will take sublingually or uh, beneath the tongue, and they will do that while we undergo a therapy session. So, and so a, we keep... a lozenge, oh. like as in like a cough drop type thing. As in a cough drop. Yes. Okay. Okay. How interesting. How long does that take like to kick in? It takes 12 minutes. No so, way. Oh my yes. gosh. Yep. So the typical ketamine session is two and a half hours. And for the first, for the first, well, I usually do a check-in of about 10 minutes and then it, the ketamine is actually absorbed in the mucous membranes of the mouth. And so the client will ingest the medicine and keep it under their tongue. And then they'll, the lozenge will dissolve in, into a, a oral solution. And so they then swish it around their mouths for about 12 minutes and then it absorbs that way. And then the client will uh, typically lie down in a couch. We use an eye mask and earphones or headphones with lyricless music, Hmm. and they engage in therapy that way. Wow. Okay. So you're talking to someone who grew up in a fundamentalist background and had zero (laughs) experience with this, but um, I know people use ketamine like recreationally too, right? Is this really yes. different from how they do that? Like, do they, I'm assuming they don't take that in a lozenge as well. <laughs> or maybe they do. I don't know. But can you yes. kind of explain, like, you know how um, uh, mushrooms or are becoming very popular therapeutically where they were mm-hmm. popular recreationally for a while? Is it kind of like that? Is Is ketamine like on a similar path, would you say? Yes, I think so. And so abusing ketamine or, or street ketamine is typically in a powder and users will snort it or insulflate. And the clinical use of ketamine is either sublingual or for higher doses, it'll be injected as a liquid, either intramuscularly or intravenously. Hmm. And so using it clinically is very, very different than using it recreationally. And, and I think too, using it clinically, you also get, you guarantee that what you're getting is actual pharmaceutical grade ketamine, whereas obviously on the black market, you you don't know what you're getting. It could be cut with things. It could be something completely different. Um, you never know about the dosing, but the benefit of the psychiatric or the pharmaceutical route is you can ensure you're getting what you're getting and the dosing is what you're wanting. Okay. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Um, so what do, what do clients experience then? Is it like a euphoria? How does it differ from other psychedelic type, uh, drugs? Yeah. So typically the first symptom they experience is tingling in the mouth and numbing, kind of a numbing sensation in the tongue. And it's actually really funny because now I'm starting to offer flavored ketamine. So there's mint, there's, uh, I I know (laughs) it's the, it's the market, it's the marketing guru in me that wants to add different flavors and colors. And, um, I, I added mint and then and I call it mountain mint. And then I have tropical, which is strawberry. And then there's pineapple. And that's just a a benefit of the compounding pharmacy that 
I work with and it just makes it kind of fun. Um, but usually the first, the first symptom is the mouth numbing. Um, and then usually at about minute six, the patient will start to feel altered. Sometimes there's, if they keep their eyes open, they'll notice, I call it the ketamine spins. So the, the visual field might look like they're spinning, even just, it's very mild, but even though they're sitting, they might start to notice some, um, like they're spinning or they just got off a merry-go-round or that type of a feeling. And then, so it's very interesting because ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. So you, you kind of feel removed from your body in a way and why that's beneficial for stress and anxiety is we don't realize it, but we somaticize and somaticize means we, we, carry around our anxiety or trauma in our bodies. And so with ketamine, you actually remove yourself from that. So an example might be someone with anxiety or trauma might have um, heart palpitations, or they might feel tightening in their throat or pain in their back, or um, they're hunched over and that's an anxiety presentation. And so for that amount of time, they get removed from that. So they can actually open their body position up and they can, for those two hours, they can see a glimpse into what it's like, what their body's like and what their mind is like without those anxiety responses. So they, and they don't have those symptoms during the time. Like, do you, do you physically see those? Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. So, and it's interesting because the somatic, meaning the body-based symptoms go away, and then there's a robust antidepressant effect and an uh, anxiolytic, which means anti-anxiety effect because of the glutamate receptors and the neurochemical impact. So for that amount of time, clients also, they're removed from the typical depression symptoms. And then also the thought patterns that reinforce the depression or the anxiety that are sometimes Mm -hmm. subconscious. And one example might be um, for PTSD, I'm about to die, or I'm a failure, or why can't mm-hmm. I get this right? Or I'm I'm so ashamed of myself. We have this narrative running through our mind that is usually linked to our distress. And so what the ketamine does, which is similar to other psychedelics, is it, it quiets down what's called the default mode network of the brain. And the default mode network of the brain, it's in the the posterior cingulate gyrus, which is a part of the brain uh, that where we usually develop our sense of self. So, and all the thoughts that go with that, and that can be both positive and negative, but for that unique window of time, they're removed from the feeling. So the physical weight of anxiety or stress. And then they also have the thought patterns lifted and it's very mild. And that's why we can dose, we can dose it. I usually start clients really low so that they can get a feel for it gradually rather than just fire hosing someone into it. Um, But it's, it's so encouraging because what happens to the brain is that then the clients can, can view themselves through this whole new lens of what am I without my X, like my trauma, my anxiety, my stress, Mm -hmm. all the things that so easily entangle me or keep me stuck. And it opens up a new realm of possibility and hope and doing something different. And um, I think that you can also view old problems in a new way and develop new solutions to old problems because 
you have it's it's actually interesting because when that the certain parts of your brain are suppressed, your cortex or some of the other parts of your brain actually can make other connections, more solution focused connections or more mm-hmm. positive connections. And that becomes reinforced because it doesn't have some of the negativity kind of dragging the brain down. Yeah. So it's, it, it's like giving you a break sort of from your, your habits and your neuro habits mm-hmm. and letting yes. you try something new. I yes. think that probably everyone can relate on some level to feeling like that, whether it's from drinking or um, using other types of drugs. You're getting high where it's like, that's one of the things that makes it enjoyable is that you you get a break from the things that normally yes. hold you back or whatever. But um, I don't know how it is with this. Do you have like um, a sense of mental clarity? Like there are clients then able to talk with you and process and work in a therapeutic way or are they just kind of like out of it? What is What happens next? Yeah, so what happens next? So I, I like to keep the doses low so that the client is in their body well well so that they have more control and they can talk and some of the higher doses which are more of the IV or IM doses that's where the clients are are not able to talk but then the client um will usually they might be inward for part of the session inward meeting it's their own internal experience so they're just with themselves in their body without talking and then when they're ready, it's a, it's a client led experience. So they'll start talking and opening up about whatever goals they have for that session. And then we will engage in psychotherapy in the session. And so that's why ketamine in the way that I practice is often referred to as a catalyst therapy, because it brings things to the surface so quickly and the normal defenses that can create blockages or that can, um, cause therapy to last kind of a longer time, some of those are eradicated. And so we can make a lot of progress uh, because the, and the patient's defenses are down and their trauma networks are, are down for that time. And so they usually start talking or processing. Sometimes they process through traumatic memories. If, if those come up, sometimes uh, they notice things happening in their body. So they'll notice, um, just their throat opening up or they feel light or airy, um, or sometimes they notice tightening in the chest and they'll, they'll notice some difficult emotions that come up that, um, that are hard for harder for them to release or harder for them to work through. And if, if those do come up, we just lean into it with openness and curiosity and, um, then they'll kind of sink deeper into, uh, what it might be like to, develop a different relationship with that part of themselves yeah that's really cool and it makes total sense to me and can see why therapies like this are becoming popular but one of the fears that a lot of people have uh I guess with any type of psychedelic drug and something that I know is you was used as like a fear tactic um Mm -hmm. when we were growing up is having you know like a bad trip or uh, this like risk that something really dark and scary could happen or that you know you're not guaranteed to have a positive experience do you have people that are fearful of that when they do this therapy and does that happen 
I would say yes and yes to both. I think people are scared and sometimes dark things can happen. And I think we can prepare as much as we can for a positive trip or a positive experience. Um, and I think sometimes the most growth can happen through having a bad trip. And I think that's one of the reasons that doing these types of therapies within a therapeutic or a clinical setting is essential because difficult emotions can come up. And oftentimes we can see the root of something more clearly and that can come, that can come with some, some difficulty, some heightened anxiety, some heightened panic. If you're viewing one of your deep seated traumas for the first time, for example, um, mm-hmm. but the, the therapist in me wants to always says lean into the darkness or lean into the discomfort and mm-hmm. explore it. And if you can do that within a safe setting, there is information there. And if, if clients are fearful or trepidatious to start the ketamine, I usually actually won't do it with them until we do some work on confronting their fears and resourcing them outside of the ketamine experience. And then once they feel more confident, then we can introduce that. Okay. Yeah. Do you have people that cite like religious background very frequently as being their point of concern or fear? Yes, a lot of times. And that's something I think the industry as a whole struggles with is the negative stigma and thinking Mm -hmm. Ketamine is sort of a party drug or, um, and it is very powerful, um, but thinking people will get addicted or it's not appropriate or it will induce a world of hallucinations or people will start trying to fly off buildings. Right. (laughs) And I think too, the negative stigma around some of that also it's a fear-based tactic and I think it comes from myth and Mm -hmm. it removes it removes uh psychopharmacology it removes uh medical trends and research Uh, because if you if you research some of these things I mean psilocybin and ketamine they're both very safe and especially at the doses that that I'm using I mean the lozenges are probably one of the safest forms of ketamine you can take. And then the doses, it's impossible at the doses I use for someone to overdose on the ketamine alone, unless there's, you know, something else in their system that they're not telling me about, but that's why it's good to have to go through a psychiatric screen and um, really make an informed decision and learn Mm -hmm. about what it is that you're putting into your body and learn how it impacts the brain and how it impacts the neurotransmitters and then understand if there are any interactions or contraindications with any of the other things you're taking too. Um, And I think the horror stories or the fear stories get publicized and the media sort of likes to kind of take these extreme cases and run with them where, okay, somebody may have gone crazy one time at a festival, a music festival taking Uh ketamine or taking acid, Um, but that's also probably because they weren't prepared or um, they maybe were taking it as a way to evade something going on. And um, those are kind of the extremes. 
and they're not informed by science or medicine or pharmacology or um, there's no blood work or genetic testing done or uh, biometric data. Uh, but I think the more we can uh, view it through a lens of um, the healing potential, I mean, from a mm-hmm. neurochemical perspective, the the better we can all um, really view the benefits and drawbacks of some of these therapies. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting. It's it's definitely hard to picture people who are, you know, when I think of like people in my former Christian community who are really strict um, or just anyone from my fundamentalist background, it's mm-hmm. hard to imagine them opting for something like this in therapy without thinking that they're doing something that's like morally wrong but um obviously the the legality piece is significant because there's a lot of you know christians who will take all kinds of medications and antidepressants and anti-anxieties which uh you know i i don't know like i'm not a therapist i'm not a doctor i don't know like the chemical differences between something like that and something like ketamine but can you just kind of speak to that a little bit like do you think there's some hypocrisy there in what's like quote-unquote allowed by Christianity and and I guess a bigger question like which I think could lead us to into a whole nother discussion but do you think that Christian teaching could be preventing people from getting the therapy that they need yes I think it's it definitely can. Um, I think I, I agree. I think, um, with my background, the, the, and I think we both kind of grew up in, uh, when the war on drugs was very fresh and the answer was abstinence and just no, 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 and just overcome it. And I think the, I mean, these, these, um, and I think it can happen with a lot of novel therapies is it, it can take a while for communities to open up to, to new types of therapies. And that's one thing I love about Denver is it is very progressive and, uh, there's a lot of clinical trials going on and psilocybin was just decriminalized in Denver, which is great. And, um, and I think, yeah, a lot of the abstinence-based models use kind of fear versus mm-hmm. education. And it it can, it's, it's really sad because um, I've definitely seen people who were kind of hurt by the church or who were encouraged to, um, I don't know, to kind of stay in things that weren't meant for them based on just unfounded or baseless information. Yeah. And I think it's, and and I come from a biased perspective because I've actually seen it work in, in clinic and I've done a lot of trainings on it and I've done a lot of research and I've been a part of a lot of really innovative conversations. And I've actually seen Mm -hmm. it take clients from 
a place of suffering into a place of healing and resolution and hope and a new relationship with themselves. And I think one of, one of the key things that, or one of the key differences with these medications is the synaptogenesis and the neurogenesis. So one example is with traditional SSRIs or traditional anti-anxieties medications, which I am an advocate for that in a way kind of masks some of the anxiety. Hmm. So it, it prevents it's, it's, it's a reuptake inhibitor and with ketamine, with psilocybin, with some of the other psychedelics, they actually uh, initiate neurogenesis. So you create new connections in your brain and you create new neurons, you create new synapses. So it actually builds something, which is so interesting. Uh, And so rather than kind of band-aiding your symptoms, which totally helps, and I'm I refer a lot of my clients to uh, psychiatry and they can, they can do that. Cause sometimes we need a quick bandaid, yeah. but these types of approaches encourage us to go a little bit deeper to really get to the root and mm. build into our brain and build into our life a way to overcome whatever yeah. that is. Actual which is like healing. Awesome. Yeah. Actual healing. So- and it's just so cool how, what it does to the brain and it kind of, it's, it's awesome. That's, I think that's really powerful what you just said. I don't think I've heard it put that way. I'm definitely oversimplifying, but it sounds like you're saying that traditional like quote unquote medications for things like anxiety and depression just block you from having those bad feelings, emotions, whatever. Mm -hmm. Whereas a therapy like this um, goes deeper and actually like corrects it or heals it or changes your brain so that you don't have it in the future. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I think it gives you the opportunity to, to kind of, cause it, cause, because it really encouraged you to get to the root of maybe why you're having the anxiety and then what you need, how you need to change the conditions of your life to um, avoid that. And that could be, you know, leaning into difficult conversations or setting boundaries or moving or, starting a new job or getting out of your current job. I mean, it gives you the insight and then what you do with it is up to you, but Mm -hmm. it gives you the opportunity to rebuild. And if you do it, because it's not a magic bullet. I mean, it still takes a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of, uh, having the desire to change things behaviorally and cognitively and the habits and patterns that reinforce that. Um, but it gives you the opportunity That's so cool. I love that. Do you think that you need to be sitting in therapy with a professional to have those kinds of results or are people having those results every day by, you know, doing drugs like with their friends? Um, Is there benefit to, to just like doing these things recreationally or like, do you need that, that guidance guided experience, I guess? I think, I think both. I think it kind of depends on what your intention is with it. And it could be, I want to use this recreationally to open myself up and have a fun night with friends. Um, or you can use it therapeutically. And what I've found that really helps in 
the therapeutic sense is to contain the experience. Mm-hmm. And what what that means is we have a plan, we have goals. I don't usually in, in integrate the ketamine or include the ketamine until maybe a couple of sessions in so that we really understand well each other and then we learn what the client's goals are. But usually having having that therapeutic space is so essential too for, because then it contains it, it reduces some of the anxiety around, okay, what is this? What, where's my accountability? How do I want this to happen? Because it's, it's usually there's a sequence to it, or there's a cadence to the sessions. There's, we're working on a goal. There's an intention. I usually ask clients, what's your intention for the session? Cause they usually come in with something that they want to work through. And then they have to think through that. And then there's, so it's very goal-directed, which I think utilizes the the medicine in in a great way. And then it, it's also combined with some evidence-based methods that that do work, um, or, or if there is any any degree of anxiety management that's desired, then we can go, we can take a clinical, some of the clinical strategies and use that as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Okay, so Hillary, while I have you, um, there's something I've been wanting to talk about. And yeah. as a you know, a licensed therapist, a professional counselor, um, you probably see people all across the spectrum, people from li- religious backgrounds um, and people with non-religious backgrounds. But one of the things that I was taught um, growing up in Christian fundamentalism and in the church was that secular, uh, therapy was sort of frowned on. And if you needed help, whether it was, um, you know, with marriage problems or anything else, you went to the church or, um, you know, we both grew up in Colorado Springs where there was focus on the family and, you know, Christian resources and, Um, we were kind of taught that if you sought help or therapy or counsel of any kind that was from a non-Christian or that wasn't like Christian or Bible-based, that basically, you know, you could be led astray or whatever. And I really saw that lead to people with no experience, with no credentials, um, counseling other people through like major issues and problems and potentially giving really bad advice. Um, and I experienced that in my life. So I'm curious, like what your thoughts are on that. And have you had people come to you that are like really messed up because they, instead of going to professionals for serious mental health problems, they, they went to their pastor who had no idea what they were talking about. Yes, I have seen that. And I've actually worked with some people to who were more traumatized from the guidance that they've, they received uh, from pastors with domestic violence and physical abuse. And it's really sad. I think it's really devastating and sad. And uh, I think that there's, there's a scientific evidence-based 
um, practices for healing some of these things. And sometimes the pastor can have that, those credentials, and sometimes they don't, but I think it can be very damaging and even negligent for the clients or for the people to get that counsel. Um, and it's, it's sad. Um, and I've seen too, just the, the belief of if you pray hard enough, then your anxiety will go away or kind of this psycho spiritual component, which is sort of a pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. And, and it's so interesting because I'm a very, I'm still a spiritual person and I still believe in God. And I also, you know, believe so much in seeking help and in advocating for mental health and for psychiatric resources and medical resources. And I, I think it's, it's just really sad because a lot of things can be healed if, if patients are just pointed in the right direction to go to someone with the proper credentials. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that's sort of part of Christian fundamentalism is that this belief that rather than taking practical steps in the many different aspects of life to solve problems, you just have faith or pray or accept challenges or abuse or whatever it might be as sort of God's will. Like, Mm -hmm. because you believe that everything is in God's control, if it's happening, it must be God's will, or maybe you're doing something wrong. Maybe you're sinning and that's why this thing is happening to you. Um, And it kind of takes the the practical and physiological elements Mm -hmm. out of it, uh, which I think is really sad. And like you said, in cases of domestic violence in particular, and I witnessed that in a church that I was part of in the Bay Area that was um, very controlling. It was actually an Acts 29 church. I don't know if you've heard of that denomination, but um, they were kind of on this little of like church discipline and the church is the family everything stays in the family and there was a a couple where the husband was violent and and physically like abusive Mm -hmm. with the wife and rather than report it um they tried to handle it within the the church by just doing counseling with the pastor and you know they separated them for a few weeks and then put them back together and um looking back that's pretty horrifying and also there just doesn't seem to be a lot of of accountability for pastors who gave that advice or churches who took those steps oh it's so it's so hard and I've had I've actually had some clients in the past who've come to me after leaving a similar situation and so and then we do the trauma work and some of the PTSD resolution work around not only the domestic violence issues, but then this, the secondary and even tertiary traumas of feeling so ostracized and, and almost gaslit mm-hmm. by the church too. So there's this secondary source of trauma too. Yeah. And, and it's incredible. I mean, we did some really good work. Um, it's, it's just really sad to see and really hard. And I think group, group think is a psychological term that just talks about how, Sometimes when there's a whole group 
emphasizing something, even if it's wrong, it's easy to justify it. And yeah. I think that that kind of mentality happens too. Yeah, 100 percent. Um, I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place here. We that's okay, we, jump. <laughs> we moved away from the the therapy and drugs topic to the to counseling, mm-hmm. and now just to go back to that because I mentioned Acts 29, I just wanted to bring up a little point, something that I saw in my Christian career, uh, quote unquote, was like I grew up in an environment where drinking was completely not okay. And uh, no one drank in the Christian evangelical Colorado Springs world. But then I saw that change when I got into my 20s and went to these more progressive churches, especially like Acts 29 and the like, um, where all of a sudden like beer was cool in church and stuff. And Hmm. the point I'm making is like, I'm wondering if, first of all, I feel like there's a lot of hypocrisy where now like progressive Christians are embracing alcohol, but they still um, are really resistant to marijuana and other types of drugs, even in therapy, even though they're, they are much safer and better for your body than alcohol. Um, So that's kind of one point I'm making is like, it seems a little hypocritical. And then I guess the second point is I'm curious if we'll see over time, the same way that churches have kind of gently become okay with alcohol use um if they'll they'll start to become okay with uh with like drug use and if like will we see like 20 years from now like people like in progressive churches like passing around a joint and like theology and like it's funny (laughs) yeah probably I mean, I've heard of that and there's, there's churches all over underground churches that are doing ayahuasca and for, for spiritual purposes. Oh, and I would assume, and it's a, um, it's a legal, uh, legality issue because if you can establish that you're using, uh, the ayahuasca for a religious purpose, then Mm -hmm. the federal laws around the, the drug classification don't apply. And so what people are doing is kind of creating these Native American ceremonial churches or these shaman churches here in the U.S. and then doing ayahuasca and it's totally legal. Um, so I've definitely heard yeah. of that happening. Yeah, that's right. That's such a good point. Um, and there is, I guess, just kind of one last point because we're coming up on time, but something I want to ask you about because there is, when you bring up ayahuasca, there's a long-standing connection between spirituality and at least ayahuasca use. Um, so what are your thoughts on that just from what you know about these types of therapies and how does it affect like our spiritual self? You just said you're a spiritual person. Like um, how do you see that connection between like our spiritual selves and having these experiences? Yeah. So I think with ayahuasca and with ketamine and some of these medicines, it opens us up to our innate healer and our innate wisdom. And there's a term called entheogenic uh, agents or (laughs) entheogens. 
<laughs> we will Which never means- know if you're right or wrong. So you could be completely making up. It'd be fine. <laughs> Entheogenic. <laughs> Let me Google that really quick. Uh, entheogenic entheogenic resources which means Hmm. um, uh, activating the god within and interesting and in the training that I took in the ketamine training and also in the MDMA training uh, they really emphasize how these substances can connect us to our inner healer and our inner wisdom and our inner God within all of us. And because sometimes we forget what that is because we get so heady or so cognitive, or we kind of, especially in the West, we live with this very intellectual, this intellectualized view of ourselves. And so what the inner healer or the inner wisdom does is it puts kind of the client and us at the center of the session and it connects us to our spiritual selves and it can with which whatever that means to the person and if they're if they believe in god it connects them to god if they're agnostic it connects them to i don't know nature or something but mm-hmm. it opens us up to our own inner healer into the God within us. And then what we do with that, that for me, that's, um, kind of connecting to a source higher than myself. And I, I do believe in God and, um, just asking for wisdom from that godly, heavenly, perfect, pure, reverent perspective and following that. Yeah. And, and it's really just about getting in touch with that. And that's something that these medications can do. And then as in a therapeutic setting, what we're taught is to just let the client lead and then trust that their inner healer and their inner wisdom can kind of lead the session. So of course the therapist is there to hold space and create the container, but the client is at the center. And so it's, it's almost like it's really empowering because then it becomes less about the method or what we're doing or doing the therapy right and more um, it really puts the client at the center of their treatment and their healing and uh, trust that the client, I might be the expert on certain things or certain techniques, but the client and their inner spirit is the expert on them. And then it's trusting that they actually know what is needed to heal them. And it's just sort of quieting down the brain and quieting down some of the fences, the defenses and getting out of their own way to trust and let that spiritual self lead and guide and open up to new insights or new perspectives. Mm. That's, that's so beautiful. I love that thought. And I think that's a really soothing thought to end this conversation with is that somewhere inside of us, we know what we need to heal Mm -hmm. ourselves and experiences like these can bring out that part of us that that can lead us or heal us I love that yeah Um, and it's almost oh go ahead no I was yeah I was just gonna ask for any other any other final thoughts or you wanted to share yes I think too it emphasizes trust of self also Um, Mm -hmm. sometimes at the core we become so 
dismantled and stressed because we don't trust ourselves to know. And then sometimes it takes quieting down and closing your eyes and realizing, oh, I know what I can do. And sometimes that sense of empowerment and sense of feeling connected to yourself can then create this headwind where you feel connected to other people and you feel intimately connected in the relationships in your life. And then you feel more present at work and more engaged in your hobbies and then um, more spiritually attuned. And it creates this momentum and this forward movement that's needed to start to thrive in areas that you want to thrive in. Yeah, that's so powerful, especially for people like us who came from background or we were told we don't know what's best for ourselves. We need to seek it outside, either through spiritual hierarchy, through our leaders, Mm -hmm. um, through God himself, and that we ultimately couldn't trust ourselves. So it's really powerful to learn to do that later in life. Um, It's powerful. It's scary sometimes, but it's so rewarding. It is. Yeah. So rewarding. Oh my gosh. This is so great. Hillary, I have loved talking about this with you and I feel like we could go on forever. Um, But thank you for your time and for being here today. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's great to connect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, If you'd like to find out more about Hillary or her practice, you can visit denverpsychotherapygroup.com. Thanks again, Hillary. Love you. Thank you. Bye. Love you. Bye.